Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Surprised by Joy, The Shape of My Early Life by C.S. Lewis Chapter 9, The Great Knock Part 1 Epigraph You will often meet with characters in nature so extravagant that a discreet poet would not venture to set them upon the stage. Lord Chesterfield On a September day, having crossed to Liverpool and reached London, I made my way to Waterloo and ran down to Great Bookham. I had been told that Surrey was suburban, and the landscape that actually flitted past the windows astonished me. I saw steep little hills, watered valleys, and wooded commons which ranked by my Wyvernian and Irish standards as forests. Bracken everywhere, a world of red and russet and yellowish greens. Even the sprinkling of suburban villas, much rarer then than now, delighted me. These timbered and red-tiled houses, embosomed in trees, were wholly unlike the stuccoed monstrosities which formed the suburbs of Belfast. Where I had expected gravel drives, and iron gates, and interminable laurels and monkey-puzzlers, I saw crooked paths running up or downhill from wicket gates, between fruit trees and birches. By a severer taste than mine, these houses would all be mocked, perhaps, yet I cannot help thinking that those who designed them and their gardens achieved their object, which was to suggest happiness. They filled me with a desire for that domesticity which, in its full development, I had never known. They set one thinking of tea trays. At Bookham, I was met by my new teacher, Kirk, or Knock, or the Great Knock, as my father, my brother, and I all called him. We had heard about him all our lives, and I therefore had a very clear impression of what I was in for. I came prepared to endure a perpetual lukewarm shower bath of sentimentality. That was the price I was ready to pay for the infinite blessedness of escaping school, but a heavy price. One story of my father's, in particular, gave me the most embarrassing forebodings. He had loved to tell how once at Lurgan, when he was in some kind of trouble or difficulty, the old knock, or the dear old knock, had drawn him aside, and there, quietly and naturally, slid his arm round him and rubbed his dear old whiskers against my father's youthful cheek and whispered a few words of comfort. And here was Bookham at last, and there was the arch-sentimentalist himself waiting to meet me. He was over six feet tall, very shabbily dressed, like a gardener, I thought, lean as a rake, and immensely muscular. His wrinkled face seemed to consist entirely of muscles, so far as it was visible, for he wore mustache and side whiskers with a clean-shaven chin, like the Emperor Franz Joseph. The whiskers, you will understand, concerned me very much at that moment. My cheek already tingled in anticipation. Would he begin at once? There would be tears for certain, perhaps worse things. It was one of my lifelong weaknesses that I never could endure the embrace or kiss of my own sex. An unmanly weakness, by the way. Aeneas, Beowulf, Roland, Launcelot, Johnson, and Nelson knew nothing of it. Apparently, however, the old man was holding his fire. We shook hands, and though his grip was like iron pincers, it was not lingering. A few minutes later, we were walking away from the station. You are now, said Kirk, proceeding along the principal artery between Great and Little Bookham. 
I stole a glance at him. Was this geographical exordium a heavy joke? Or was he trying to conceal his emotions? His face, however, showed only an inflexible gravity. I began to make conversation in the deplorable manner which I had acquired at those evening parties, and indeed found increasingly necessary to use with my father. I said I was surprised at the scenery of Surrey. It was much wilder than I had expected. "'Stop!' shouted Kirk, with a suddenness that made me jump. "'What do you mean by wildness, and what grounds had you for not expecting it?' I replied, I don't know what, still making conversation. As answer after answer was torn to shreds, it at last dawned upon me that he really wanted to know. He was not making conversation, nor joking, nor snubbing me. He wanted to know. I was stung into attempting a real answer. A few passes sufficed to show that I had no clear and distinct idea corresponding to the word wildness, and that, in so far as I had any idea at all, wildness was a singularly inept word. Do you not see, then, concluded the great knock, that your remark was meaningless? I prepared to sulk a little, assuming that the subject would now be dropped. Never was I more mistaken in my life. Having analyzed my terms, Kirk was proceeding to deal with my propositions as a whole. On what had I based, but he pronounced it bazed, my expectations about the flora and geology of Surrey? Was it maps, or photographs, or books? I could produce none. It had, heaven help me, never occurred to me that what I called my thoughts needed to be bazed on anything. Kirk once more drew a conclusion without the slightest sign of emotion, but equally without the slightest concession to what I thought good manners. Do you not see, then, that you had no right to have any opinion whatever on the subject? By this time our acquaintance had lasted about three and a half minutes, but the tone set by this first conversation was preserved, without a single break, during all the years I spent at Bookham. Anything more grotesquely unlike the dear old knock of my father's reminiscences could not be conceived. Knowing my father's invariable intention of veracity, and also knowing what strange transformations every truth underwent when once it entered his mind, I am sure he did not mean to deceive us. But if Kirk at any time of his life took a boy aside and there, quietly and naturally, rubbed the boy's face with his whiskers, I shall as easily believe that he sometimes varied the treatment by quietly and naturally standing on his venerable and egg-bald head, if ever a man came near to being a purely logical entity, that man was Kirk. Born a little later, he would have been a logical positivist. The idea that human beings should exercise their vocal organs for any purpose except that of communicating or discovering truth was to him preposterous. The most casual remark was taken as a summons to disputation. I soon came to know the differing values of his three openings. The loud cry of, Stop! was flung in to arrest a torrent of verbiage, which could not be endured a moment longer. Not because it fretted his patience, he never thought of that, but because it was wasting time, darkening counsel. The hastier and quieter, Excuse? That is, excuse me. Ushered in a correction or distinction merely parenthetical, and betokened that, thus set right, your remark might still, without absurdity, be allowed to reach completion. The most encouraging of all was, I hear you. This meant that your remark was significant, and only required refutation. 
It had risen to the dignity of error. Refutation, when we got so far, always followed the same lines. Had I read this? Had I studied that? Had I any statistical evidence? Had I any evidence in my own experience? And so to the almost inevitable conclusion, do you not see then that you had no right? Etc. Some boys would not have liked it. To me, it was red beef and strong beer. I had taken it for granted that my leisure hours at Bookham would be passed in grown-up conversation, and that, as you know already, I had no taste for. In my experience, it meant conversation about politics, money, deaths, and digestion. I assumed that a taste for it, as for eating mustard or reading newspapers, would develop in me when I grew older. So far, all three expectations have been disappointed. The only two kinds of talk I wanted were the almost purely imaginative and the almost purely rational. Such talk as I had about boxing with my brother, or about Valhalla with Arthur, on the one hand, or such talk as I had with my Uncle Gussie about astronomy, on the other. I could never have gone far in any science because on the path of every science the lie in mathematics lies in wait for you. Even in mathematics, whatever could be done by mere reasoning, as in simple geometry, I did with delight. But the moment calculation came in, I was helpless. I grasped the principles, but my answers were always wrong. Yet though I could never have been a scientist, I had scientific as well as imaginative impulses, and I loved ratiocination. Kirk excited and satisfied one side of me. Here was talk that was really about something. Here was a man who thought not about you, but about what you said. No doubt I snorted and bridled a little at some of my tossings, but taking it all in all, I loved the treatment. After being knocked down sufficiently often, I began to know a few guards and blows, and put on intellectual muscle. In the end, unless I flatter myself, I became a not-contemptible sparring partner. It was a great day when the man who had so long been engaged in exposing my vagueness at last cautioned me against the dangers of excessive subtlety. If Kirk's ruthless dialectic had been merely a pedagogic instrument, I might have resented it. But he knew no other way of talking. No age or sex was spared the Alentius. It was a continuous astonishment to him that anyone should not desire to be clarified or corrected. When a very dignified neighbor, in the course of a Sunday call, observed with an air of finality, Well, well, Mr. Kirkpatrick, it takes all sorts to make a world. You are a liberal, and I am a conservative. We naturally look at the facts from different angles. Kirk replied, What do you mean? Are you asking me to picture liberals and conservatives playing peep-bow at a rectangular fact from opposite sides of a table? If an unwary visitor, hoping to waive a subject, observed, Of course, I know opinions differ. Kirk would raise both his hands and exclaim, Good heavens! I have no opinions on any subject whatsoever. A favorite maxim was, You can have enlightenment for ninepence, but you prefer ignorance commonest metaphors would be questioned till some bitter truth had been forced from its hiding place. These fiendish German atrocities! But are not fiends a figment of the imagination? Very well, then, these brutal atrocities. But none of the brutes does anything of the kind. Well, what am I to call them? Is it not plain that we must call them simply human? 
What excited his supreme contempt was the conversation of other headmasters, which he had sometimes had to endure at conferences when he himself was head of Lurgan. They would come and ask me, What attitude do you adopt to a boy who does so-and-so? Good heavens, as if I ever adopted an attitude to anybody or anything. Sometimes, but rarely, he was driven to irony. On such occasions his voice became even weightier than usual, and only the distension of his nostrils betrayed the secret to those who knew him. It was in such fashion that he produced his dictum. The master of Balliol is one of the most important beings in the universe. It will be imagined that Mrs. Kirkpatrick led a somewhat uneasy life. Witness the occasion on which her husband, by some strange error, found himself in the drawing-room at the beginning of what his lady had intended to be a bridge party. About half an hour later she was observed to leave the room with a remarkable expression on her face, and many hours later still the great knock was discovered sitting on a stool in the midst of seven elderly ladies. Full dreary was her chair, begging them to clarify their terms. I have said that he was almost wholly logical but not quite. He had been a Presbyterian, and was now an atheist. He spent Sunday, as he spent most of his time on weekdays, working in his garden. But one curious trait from his Presbyterian youth survived. He always, on Sundays, gardened in a different and slightly more respectable suit. An Ulster Scot may come to disbelieve in God, but not to wear his weekday clothes on the Sabbath. Having said that he was an atheist, I hasten to add that he was a rationalist of the old, high and dry 19th century type. For atheism has come down in the world since those days, and mixed itself with politics, and learned to dabble in dirt. The anonymous donor who now sends me anti-God magazine's hopes, no doubt, to hurt the Christian in me. He really hurts the ex-atheist. I am ashamed that my old mates and, which matters much more, Kirk's old mates, should have sunk to what they are now. It was different then. Even McCabe wrote like a man. At the time when I knew him, the fuel of Kirk's atheism was chiefly of the anthropological and pessimistic kind. He was great on the Golden Bough and Schopenhauer. The reader will remember that my own atheism and pessimism were fully formed before I went to Bookham. What I got there was merely fresh ammunition for the defense of a position already chosen. Even this I got indirectly from the tone of his mind or independently from reading his books. He never attacked religion in my presence. It is the sort of fact that no one would infer from an outside knowledge of my life, but it is a fact. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.